Our reading for today is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Listen now to the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Please pray with me. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is now the uh, fifth sermon in a series of sermons I've been preaching through Lent as we continue to reflect on what it means for us to be the church as we live out our discipleship through a renewal of our commitments to Jesus Christ and to one another. We affirm the priesthood of all believers and in the vows we take in becoming members, we covenant with one another to share in the worship and service or the worship and ministry of this church. To be a Christian in any meaningful sense, as you just heard from Pastor Dohi, is to belong to Jesus Christ and therefore necessarily to belong to one another in worship and service. We are called to a life together, characterized by a new way of living. We are a royal and holy priesthood, the body of Christ and individually members of it. And in our reading today, Paul offers us another way of thinking about what it means for us to be the church. Paul begins by saying that something has fundamentally changed. Just as we used to look at Christ according to the flesh, but no longer, so we similarly no longer look at other human beings according to the flesh. There has been a change in perspective. For Paul, flesh or according to the flesh is incompatible with the ways of the spirit. He wrote, for example, in Romans 8, that to live according to the flesh is death. It is hostile to God. It cannot please God. According to the flesh, however, does not mean according to the body. This is not a rejection of the human body, nor of our physicality, but rather a rejection of all that is worldly and opposed to God and the Spirit of God. Unfortunately, according to the flesh, 
is how we still largely regard others. For example, if I were to ask you to describe your neighbor, a coworker, or a classmate, what would be your first thoughts? I suspect you would probably describe their physical appearance, their ethnicity, their age, and gender. If pressed further, you might mention their jobs, maybe how they dress, what kind of car they drive, where they live, and by implication, their wealth and education. All worldly specs according to the flesh. In our choice of descriptors, we are essentially judging others according to the flesh. And in doing that, we reinforce this hierarchy of human life, deeming some lives as more important or more valuable than others. This week, we were given another painful reminder of this form of judgment taken to the extreme in the cowardly murder of eight people in Atlanta. For some, this was just another senseless mass shooting that has become far too common in this country. But I know that for many of you, this one resonated more deeply and was more traumatizing because six of the victims were women of Asian descent. The murders accentuate the fact that in the past year, there were nearly 4,000 reported cases of hate committed against the Asian American community, with nearly 70% of those crimes committed against women. Seen in the context of the recent surge of hate crimes against Asian Americans, this desecration of human lives is particularly disturbing. On top of your year-long anxiety about the coronavirus, especially in regard to your elderly parents, I know that many of you now carry the added fear over concern for the safety of your parents and others as they go about their basic routines like a walk in the neighborhood. It is frustrating, maddening, frightening, saddening. And yet, it does not really surprise us because we know that the world has always valued some lives as less than others. That is the economy of the world. The world values or dismisses human beings and human lives according to the flesh, according to worldly attributes, appearances, or accomplishments. Paul was guilty of this too, even taking part in the mob-led murder of Stephen as a younger man. But he says, that's what we used to do, but no longer. There has been a radical paradigm shift. From now on, he says, we will not, we cannot look at anyone the same way again. This is what he gets at in passages like Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all the children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there a slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not trying to obliterate our various identity markers. 
He's not saying, I don't see race, gender, or social status. His point is that in Jesus Christ, we are equally loved as the children of God, first and foremost, regardless of everything else. Every person has equal value because of their position in Jesus Christ, irrespective of gender, color, social status. We value others not because of what they can do for us, not because they agree with us, not because they look like us, but because they are treasured by God, created by God, loved by God, redeemed by God, and reconciled by God. This should be so obvious that I shouldn't have to say it, but as Christians, hate, violence, misogyny, sexism, racism, the diminishment of any human being is completely incompatible with the Christian faith and is to be at all times challenged and rejected. We do this because Jesus Christ has created a new normal. There are periodically events of such magnitude that we can no longer see the world in the same way as before. People in Paul's day might have pointed to the ascent of Caesar Augustus or the policies of Herod the Great. Historians might point to the bubonic plague or the discovery of atomic power. In our generation, we'd probably point to 9-11 and COVID-19. But as important as those events may be, or any other historical event that you can think of, the shift caused by the cross and the resurrection are on a whole and completely different level. This is what Paul experienced. Earlier in his life, he had persecuted the followers of Jesus because he judged Christ according to the flesh. But then on the road to Damascus, he had a transformative encounter with the resurrected Lord, and he saw not only Jesus in a whole new way, but he saw all people in a completely different light. For those of you who are fans of the old Matrix movies, it's like the choice that Neil faced at the very beginning. Morpheus, the leader of the rebellion, offers him the choice between taking either a red pill or a blue pill. If he takes the blue pill, he stays in the Matrix blissfully unaware of the harsh truth of reality. But if he takes the red pill, he will see the world for what it really is. It's a harder world, much more difficult, but it's the truth. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He speaks of our complete new reality. New life in Christ, born of the resurrection, is not about some daily and small revisions or incremental improvements over decades. It's a new creation. In Christ, everything has changed. This is one of the first verses I have students in the confirmation class memorize. And I know that many others of you 
have memorized this verse as well. You probably learned it and understood it as pointing to your individual and personal transformation, that each of us who is in Christ becomes a new creation. That's not wrong. But I don't think it's entirely complete. In the Greek, it actually reads, literally, so if in Christ, new creation. There are no verbs. And so translators have had to supply the verbs. And you can see the differences in these three popular translations. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, ESV. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, NIV. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation, the NRSV. The need for personal transformation is essential, no question. In Christ, I am personally, individually made new. But Paul and the grammar here suggest that there is more. It suggests that it's not just me who becomes a new creation, but that the scope of the new creation is much larger, encompassing a renewed world and the kingdom of God. It changes everything, not just me. Everything has become new. The whole world is, is being made new. As God says in Isaiah 65, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. We are part of this new creation of the heavens and the earth. It's almost like Paul is shouting, in Christ, new creation, all is new. A new perspective in the way we look at people no longer according to the flesh, a new relationship with God reconciled by Jesus Christ, a new vocation as ambassadors for Christ, as we will see a little bit later. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This new creation, the new reality, is entirely the work of God in Jesus Christ. All of this is from God. God is the one who makes it possible for us to be made new through God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ. All of history culminates in the cross that made reconciliation with God possible. We could even say that reconciliation is God's primary mission. Now in English, reconciliation or to reconcile can mean several things. For example, it can mean to accept or to be resigned to something undesirable, such as we are being reconciled to the fact that we will probably have to wear masks for the near foreseeable future. It can also mean to cause harmony or to make peace, such as, such as we might wish for Meghan and Harry and the royal family to be reconciled. It can also mean to make consistent, such as when bank statements are reconciled with receipts. It surprised me this week that the word reconcile and reconciliation don't appear that often in the Bible. But according to John Caputo in his book, The Weakness of God, 
Reconciliation depends on reasons, excuses, or confessions. Furthermore, reconciliation carries with it this basic meaning of exchange or buying back such as a debt caused by injury. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Suppose I forget my wife's birthday. Now remember, this is just a hypothetical illustration. She would rightly be upset with me. So to be reconciled, <coughs> so to be reconciled, I might offer an excuse such as, hey, we've been in lockdown and all the days are getting mixed up and I'm just confused. Or I might just own up and apologize and perhaps follow that up with cooking dinner or bringing flowers or something like that. On the surface, my excuse or confession and actions are buying back the debt or the pain I caused her when I forgot her birthday. To put it really crudely, to be reconciled, I have to offer something that she considers an equivalent exchange. That is, have I offered enough in explanation or material goods or even penitence to sufficiently make up or to soothe her pain? If I do that, then we can be reconciled. Now, this understanding of reconciliation is quite different from forgiveness with which reconciliation is often confused, conflated with, or mistaken for. Forgiveness has a completely different logic. Forgiveness is not a buying back. It is not an economic transaction. If you give someone, if you forgive someone, based on the repentance of the one who has offended or injured you, it is no longer forgiveness. If forgiveness has to be earned through sufficient remorse, it is no longer forgiveness. If you are motivated to forgive someone because not forgiving will only eat away at your own soul, you might find healing in that. But again, it is not, strictly speaking, forgiveness. Forgiveness is pure gift. And without it, there can be no hope for reconciliation, restoration, or friendship. We can see this most clearly in God's actions. When God chose to forgive us in Jesus Christ, He did not first demand sorrow and penitence from us before that forgiveness was extended. This is the good news. Forgiveness was freely given, though it was incredibly costly to the giver. We must never forget that the cost that the giver suffers and accepts in forgiving. The giver willingly absorbs that pain and forgoes their right to punish and to extract a just payment. For example, if you were to break a window in my house and I were to forgive you, it would mean that I am releasing you from the debt that I have a right to collect from you. I fully absorb the cost of that broken window. Now, the cost of a broken window is obviously a very small thing, especially between friends. 
But what about absorbing the far heavier emotional cost of a husband's failure, a daughter's anger, a brother's betrayal? Yet that's the logic, or perhaps the illogic, of forgiveness. It is utter grace. So even though Paul here is using the terms of reconciliation, behind it lies the necessary forgiveness. God's reconciling action in Jesus Christ is not just a restoration of relationship through the settling of debts on the cross. It is foremost and more fundamentally a restoration of relationship by pure grace. The cross is not a tit-for-tat exchange, but a costly grace. God reconciles us to himself by grace while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. Forgiveness is offered prior to repentance. That's what makes it forgiveness. And in true reconciliation, this gift of forgiveness must be its foundation. Now, practically speaking, I think almost all of our forgiving is more like a reconciling transaction rather than an act of grace. We forgive or are willing to be reconciled when someone says they're sorry or apologize or are willing to make up for the wrong they have committed against us. We forgive in response to someone seeking that forgiveness in sincerity. Now, I know it is no small task to genuinely forgive someone who has hurt you. I'm not diminishing that at all. And so to do so, to offer that kind of forgiveness in response to genuine remorse at any time is godly and good, and we should all seek to do so. But I believe the gospel calls us to do something even more difficult. The gospel calls us to forgive as God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. Even on the cross with his dying breath, Jesus forgave those who unrepentantly crucified him, asking, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I know that it's hard to imagine extending that level of love. But that's what the gospel calls us to. And I believe it is really this kind of grace, this unmerited forgiveness that will make lasting and genuine reconciliation possible. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, he who is devoid of power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. We can never say, I will forgive you and I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. In forgiving, we choose to be reconciled. We acknowledge the sin. We do not dismiss the sin, but we, used to, but we choose to remain committed to one another, to the relationship, 
Forgiveness says, just as God will remember my sins no longer, I will not dwell on your sin against me. Just as God will not hold my sins against me, I will not bring up your sin to use it against you. And just as nothing will separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ, I will not let your sin hinder our relationship. This is the result of knowing and having been reconciled with God by God. We are then consequently entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God. All this is from God, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation is the good news of Jesus Christ, that in him, God reconciled the world to himself and has made all things new. The ministry of reconciliation proclaims that message and works toward reconciliation between people. It's not just about the reconciliation of the world in some broad and generic terms. It is also a very personal reconciliation. Early in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul had written, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you, that is why I wrote this letter to you. Even though this is a church that has challenged the very legitimacy of his call to be an apostle, even though they have questioned his moral integrity, even though they have broken his heart, he's still longing to restore their fellowship. Isn't this also our own longing and yearning? Are we also not heartbroken by the brokenness of our own relationships, as well as by the brokenness of the relationships we see all around us. I know that this can be incredibly painful and incredibly difficult, but this is our vocation. We are called to the ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry of members of the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says, in fact, that we are ambassadors for Christ and that God is making his appeal through us. Ambassadors have the fundamental task, the burden of representing a nation or speaking on behalf of a nation or a king. And Paul says, this is what we are. This is what the church is. We represent, we speak on behalf of God. We're like an embassy. It's an incredible privilege and responsibility. You know, thinking about this reminded me of a time when I was in middle school and high school. In the sixth and seventh grade, I was the only Asian kid in my entire middle school. 
Then in eighth grade, another Korean joined the middle school, my younger sister. It got a little better in high school so that by the time that I was a senior in high school, there were two other Korean students in my grade, three of us, not including my, my sisters. Even back then, I can remember thinking that for some of my white classmates and friends, I might be the only Korean Asian person they will have any relationship with for the rest of their lives because there were so few Asians in my town. Their perception of a Korean might be entirely or largely shaped by their interactions with me, by how I am. I, of course, completely overestimated my own importance and totally underestimated the power of media. But I remember feeling this responsibility to represent Koreans, which is really ironic because as my wife will tell you, I did not consciously or particularly identify myself as a Korean in my youth. And yet I can look back at that time and I can see that I felt this burden because I unconsciously understood that's how I was being perceived, regardless of how I may have saw myself. Of course, it was an unfair burden. It's unfair to judge all Koreans by one individual. Likewise, it's unfair to judge Christianity by one person or one church or even a denomination. It's unfair, but that is how the world sees us. It also happens to be God's decision to choose us as his representatives. Wherever we are, at home, at work, at school, we individually and we as a church represent Christ as Christ's ambassadors. And now this is where it gets really, really difficult. We are ambassadors for Christ. And Paul says this, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only are we ambassadors for Christ, not only does God make his appeal to the world through us in our word and ministry, but Paul says that in Jesus Christ, we have become the righteousness of God. We might have expected Paul to say something like, so that we might know the righteousness of God, or that we might proclaim the righteousness of God, or even that we might be justified by the righteousness of God. Instead, he says, so that we might become, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It means that we are more than merely carrying out a ministry of reconciliation. Far more than that, we are to fully embody the word of reconciliation. We are to incarnate the righteousness of God in our midst and to do so in such a way 
that the message of reconciliation is made visible to the world. In fact, the point of the cross is that we might become the righteousness of God. God has literally placed in us the word of reconciliation. God is not just giving us a message to pass along. We don't just announce this word of reconciliation. We embody it. We live it out fully amongst ourselves. Do you see what this means? The world does not question divisions within families, the rifts between friends, the ruptures between coworkers, or the alienation between neighbors. The world says, that's just life. It's just the way it is. The world tells us that people don't like each other. Friends drift apart. Couples break up. That's nothing new. There's nothing new to see here. Just, just move along. Get new friends. But the gospel says no. No. In fact, the gospel screams no to that kind of casual, callous, and cynical dismissal of relationships and human beings. The costly cross teaches us that people are greatly valued and relationships must also likewise be valued. We cannot simply toss them in the garbage bin when they become inconvenient or when we disagree or even when we hurt as if people and relationships were disposable and readily replaceable. The one lost lamb must be searched for and found. So I call upon you today, share the message of reconciliation and do the ministry of reconciliation. I know that the world and the people around you and you yourselves are longing for reconciliation. Don't just move on. Don't just avoid. Don't just gloss over wrongs. And don't just retreat into the comfort and ease among your own tribe. Instead, pursue and embody genuine healing and reconciliation rooted in forgiveness. This is our ministry. This is God's call for us in Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you to begin with yourself. Begin by praising God that He has reconciled you with Himself in Jesus Christ. And then in light of that truth and mercy, ask yourself, who are the people in my life that I need to begin this work of reconciliation? Pray that you might be able to extend this unmerited forgiveness just as God in Jesus Christ has forgiven you. It is no less a task than this to which God has called us. We are the body of Christ and we embody the righteousness of God. May we, as ambassadors of Christ, bear faithful and loving witness to God's mercy.
Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the cross which makes all things new. Help us to see with new eyes that every life is valuable because you have paid for every life with the costly blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us. Help us. We thank you for the forgiveness which makes reconciliation possible. Secure in that knowledge, help us to embody and to do the work of reconciliation which you have given us. Help us to do the hard work with our families, our friends, our neighbors, and even our enemies. Help us to extend this ministry beyond our circle to seek the reconciliation of the whole world so that we might see the fulfillment of that great vision to witness the lion and the lamb sitting down together, reconciled in peace in your, come, in your kingdom. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, 